Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. Militaries around the world are preparing for climate change. That's true even in countries where politicians are indifferent to global warming. Or at least were. But what about the emissions being spewed by those militaries themselves? Joining us to talk about that today is Doug Weir. He's research and policy director at the Conflict and Environmental Observatory. And he's actually studied this issue, which is uh, makes him one of very few. So welcome to the show. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. How much do we actually know about military greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, so this has been an interesting process. I think historically, there's been a lot of focus on the US and the US emissions because they're, they're pretty substantial, very substantial, to be fair. What we do know has tended to come from academics who have tried to figure out what's being emitted. And the main reason that's the case is that the militaries themselves don't really report their emissions particularly effectively or indeed at all effectively at the moment. So, but a lot of it is guesswork, really. You can see, for example, one study looked at the US and how much oil and hydrocarbon products the US military gets through every year, and then made some assumptions based on that. But honestly, we don't really have a particularly clear handle on the emissions from most militaries around the world. Do we know if this is something the Pentagon is actively looking at? I, we, you know, we get these reports from them fairly regularly in the last five years where they say, hey, you know, climate change is a problem. Here's what we're going to do as, you know, the world starts breaking down. Here's our game plan, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe like we, we didn't we come to the idea for this episode, Jason, because in one of the previous conversations with a guest, someone brought up like, hey, has anyone ever looked at what the military emissions are? So does the Pentagon, do we know? I mean, obviously, they're not reporting it to us, but does the, do we know if the Pentagon is even studying this thing or even thinking about it in the Yes, yes. There are people thinking about it. There are people doing things and taking action. There have been for quite a while. It has reduced its consumption over the last few years, but it's a question of what's the motiva- motivation for doing that. 
And what we've tended to see from the US is that they're mainly motivated by making them more effective at fighting wars. So it's a question of, okay, we don't have to fill lots of tanker lorries full of diesel and ship them to forward operating bases and they can be attacked along the way. Let's get some renewable energy in those forward operating bases instead of relying on diesel generators. And it's that kind of mentality rather than, oh, we're having a massive impact on global climate change. We probably ought to do something about that. That seems to be changing a little bit, but I think part of the issue we see with not just the US, but militaries around the world is where's the motivation? What's the motivating factor for them to change their behaviors? And historically on environmental issues across the board, militaries enjoy this sort of sense of environmental exceptionalism, that they're kind of outside of the norms and rules which govern the rest of society and other sectors. And so there hasn't been the same pressure on them to take action as we've seen on, yeah. I guess it makes sense in the way that the military feels like, well, if you need us, you need us. And if you need us, you're not going to care what kind of emissions that we're spewing out, I guess. Yeah, to a point. But then it's a question of, well, if the militaries themselves are contributing to the security problems that they're trying to deal with, obviously, you could say that for weapons proliferation generally, and there's arguments to be had there. But yeah. particularly now you've got the US and others from NATO who are positioning themselves as leaders on climate security. Then there's this question of, you know, if you want to be leaders on this issue, then you really need to start getting your own house in order at the same time. And military vehicles of various kinds are pretty lethal as far as environmental, you know, impact, right? I mean, they use some of the dirtiest fuels and they use them in great abundance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this it kind of speaks to a wider problem <clears throat> as to why anybody who's expecting massive radical change in emissions overnight is probably going to be disappointed. So when you look at the length of procurement for most military vehicles and for how long they tend to be in service, it's decades. You know, it's not like people changing an iPhone every two years. This is sitting on a main battle tank for 20 years, 30 years. And at the same time, at the moment with our current technology, there's no way of driving that 60-ton main battle tank on electric batteries. These are some of the issues we're going to have to sort of accept and work around. And yeah, militaries are going to have to come up with some clever solutions. Obviously, the nature of warfare is changing all the time. Maybe there will be changes in relation to that. Until they kind of start accepting this and until there's some external pressure on them to actually start generating these changes and using these vast quantities of money which are sunk into military R&D and military procurement every year, to actually sort of move to more sustainable procurement, then we're not really going to see the change we need. But yeah, it does ultimately come down to this question of how much military are we going to need? How is it going to be used? What are the environmental impacts of that? Because it's going to get increasingly less acceptable for them to operate in the way that they have been operating because of the international concerns about a changing climate. So we have this big COP6 going on right now, right? Started yesterday. Do we know if this is something that's even part of the conversations that are happening there? Is this on the agenda? Is is this something that anyone's actually talking about at those mm-hmm. levels? Yeah. So I guess you probably need to step back a little bit to uh, the Kyoto Protocol. So back in the yeah latter stages of the last century. So in order to get the, military, the US on board with the Kyoto Protocol, militaries emissions were excluded from reporting under it. And that was the one of the key diplomatic asks of the US. There's an interesting uh, congressional meeting the following year where featuring uh, some Joe Biden character and John Kerry, I think his name is, and the current 
US climate envoy, who is there praising the diplomatic team who had managed to get this blanket exemption for military emissions. And he's saying, oh, you know, he's, public servants got a lot of flack, but you guys have really pulled it out, knocked it out of the park, and it should be it was an amazing job. And it's like, well, times do change, don't they? But uh, yeah, because of that, that kind of set the tone for many years. And then under Paris, military emissions reporting became voluntary. But we see it a lot with these multilateral environmental agreements, these environmental treaties and processes. The military stuff tends to be excluded. So there's a treaty banning mercury, for example, in order to get the US on board, military applications of mercury had to be excluded from the convention. It turns out you need them in night vision goggles and things. So we see, again, this kind of military exceptionalism story, which we see, and it's been the same with the UNFCCC in Paris. So after Paris, military emissions reporting was the intergovernmental panel on climate change, which kind of sets the standards for how governments should report to the UNFCCC on what they're doing to reduce their emissions. They do have guidance on how militaries should report. It's not particularly great. And that's something we've been looking at for the last few months, <clears throat> trying to get a kind of overview of what countries actually report to the UNFCCC. Because if you're not reporting your emissions, there's no way you're going to cut them. Because if nobody knows what you're emitting and you don't know what you're emitting, then you can't even have that conversation about how to reduce them. So historically, we've tended to see military emissions excluded from the agenda of the COP process and COP26 is no different. But this year, there's been a definite uptick in the number of civil society organizations and campaigners who are flagging this as an issue alongside some of the other stuff, which isn't included at the moment, like aviation. So yeah, there's a lot more attention on it this year than there has been previously, but it's still not on the formal COP agenda, should we say. In a report that uh, your group put out recently, you talk about the major source from militaries of greenhouse gases, and it's not combat. Where actually does you know this come from? Yeah, so this is the thing: is preconceptions and misconceptions, I suppose. That when we think about militaries, we think about the tanks and the vehicles and stuff. We think about the bases, and just in reference to that reporting to the UN, those are the two categories which can be reported under. So it's mobile fuel use. So for vehicle, your tanks and things, and also stationary fuel use, so heating for military bases. And that's kind of a narrow approach that most people have when thinking about militaries. But actually, I think what we found and others have found when taking a closer look is that there's the institutional emissions like that. But then beyond that, there are supply chains in particular. And with most organizations that you look at, military or civilian, it's the supply chains that tend to be, can be three, four, five times larger in terms of emissions than the actual organization itself. And so in the case of the military, you know, it's not just guns, bullets and consumables. It's everything to support, you know, those massive numbers of troops. I remember back to Iraq when you had Halliburton and KBR building those huge installations across Iraq and everything that goes into that from your Pizza Hut and your Burger Kings <laughs> to the whole work. So once you take a look at this, the entire supply chain of these militaries, it tends to radically increase the level of emissions that they're, they're creating. And that's just not being addressed and not being counted at the moment. But then if you take a step beyond that and start looking at, well, do we need to look at the whole life cycle of the militaries? Um, obviously, you have the life cycle of weapons from production, through to use, through to disposal, whatever, but also the life cycle of military activities. So do we need to look at conflicts and what happens in conflicts? Obviously, we see 
a lot of fires, a lot of devastation, but we also see <clears throat> very significant socioeconomic changes in countries, which can then have big influence on some of the carbon sources and some of the carbon sinks. So example of is cities that are bombed in Syria, they need to be rebuilt. What's the carbon cost of that given the amount of cement that's going to take? You know, it's millions and millions of tons of cement potentially. And often when we look at peace, we see radical increases in emissions as well. So if you look at Colombia post-conflict, it's an interesting case that the FARC were protecting areas of rainforest um, because they were using them since the conflict has ended, or the peace agreement's been signed at least, there's been this massive upsurge in deforestation from these areas which were previously protected by the presence of the FARC, and that will have a huge impact on uh, Colombia's annual emissions. So we perhaps need to take this kind of wider, more holistic view of how not just militarism, but also conflicts themselves contribute to generating emissions. So building a bomb is worse for the environment than dropping one? <laughs> Or is that too simplistic? Well, which kind of bomb, Jason? Uh, well, okay. Would be, would, be, would be my pushback on that. <laughs> and this, is, okay. this is it. It's like how many of those bombs are actually used in conflict? I and mean, that's the thing with the US in particular, and the size, certainly the size of the Cold War stockpiles in which tend to be held. Most of those bombs were never used in training or in active conflict and were made and then disposed of at the end of their lives through open burning or demolition. What's the environmental impact of that? So, yeah, we can't really, we need to kind of step back from our kind of these simplistic approaches to emissions and, yeah, take this kind of wider holistic approach, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think nuclear weapons are a pretty instructive way to look at this, actually, as I'm thinking about it, because you think about in combat, as part of a war, we only ever dropped two, right? But between the testing and the and the development, like how many countless people and environments were destroyed P people in the marshall islands are still you know trying to trying to deal with this the places where we, we we don't even have places where we can dispose of the stuff because no one wants it in their backyard right and the the legacy of what has become the environment in the american southwest because of people rushing out there to try to mine uranium and the testing on top of that i mean it's it's this stuff can be quite devastating and not just because of the use of the weapons that never, I, that had not occurred to me in this context. I think that's important. Well, I think I, I have to say though, that it's been proposed. And I mean, seriously, people have proposed using nuclear weapons to create a nuclear winter, thereby counteracting climate change. So you got to look at both sides. <laughs> Good people on both sides. Yeah, I'm not sure to take off. No, I'm, I'm hoping we're past that point of where we can find terribly useful applications for nuclear weapons, like digging canals across the former Soviet Union and other approaches, which, yeah, yeah. There's that crazy mine in eastern Ukraine, uh, the Red October mine, where they wanted to, they had a really bad problem with methane buildups in coal mines and they thought letting off a small nuclear device in this mine would somehow remedy this sort of methane issue. And so now you have this huge cavity formed by this nuclear blast, which this area is in eastern Ukraine, current area of the conflict. That's meant that the pumps that should be pumping the water out of the mine have now been switched off. And so the water is rising in the mine and now that water is now leaking. And it may well be the case that radionuclides from this blast chamber are now leaking into the environment. So this idiotic idea, which was kind of born out of nuclear war and cold war, 
has then sort of gone full cycle into then becoming an environmental issue in an actual war <laughs> decades later. It's almost as if actions have consequences. Do we know if – so you've kind of talked about the logistics of the military being a big contributor. Is there one particular – like is the Navy worse than the Air Force? Is the Air Force worse than the Army or do we know? We don't really know because of the state of reporting. There's like some interesting facts out there. Like There's about twice as many military aircraft in service than civilian aircraft. Obviously, they're quite different aircraft and they're used in different ways. But yeah, kind of stats like that make you think a little bit. In terms of Navy, yeah, global naval fleets are considerably smaller than merchant fleets. But again, their fuel was bunker fuel generally for shipping is exempted from reporting. That's one of the things with ABA, which is currently exempted from UNFCCC reporting. And that's something which definitely needs to be addressed. So yeah, we don't really have a great handle on this. And obviously, this is kind of the problem that even comparing it between countries is quite different. So you could look at the US force structure as an advanced military, compare it to, say, China, where you have somewhat lower levels of tech, but perhaps more people under arms. And the composition of these militaries varies so much that it actually makes it very difficult to sort of compare evenly. So we, we were kind of looking at what's being reported by militaries and trying to figure out, is there some kind of standard conversion factor we can apply by saying, well, look, this is how much money they spend every year on their militaries. Could we multiply it by something to give us a, a rough back of fag packet estimate around what their emissions would be? But there's so much variation between countries, it makes it really difficult to do so. And then we're pretty short on examples as well. So there's a place like Saudi Arabia, which spends about as much on its military every year as the UK does. That's 8% of GDP for Saudi Arabia. So US is what, four-ish? UK is around 2%. So they're spending a ton of money every year, but they've reported absolutely no data on their military emissions to the UNFCCC. So we have no idea what that kind of represents. And interestingly, you know, saw the other day, they were saying, well, we're going to go for net zero by 2050 start making this transition and it's like well are you going to include your military emissions in that and i'll be interested to see whether that's ever on the agenda for the saudis but yeah there's just these huge black holes essentially it's ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You did mention one specific case that I thought was interesting, because you mentioned what happens when a sortie of B-2 bombers makes a flight, and you actually calculated how much uh, carbon was put out. And it's not a matter of the number. I'm just wondering, like, I mean, just some sort of perspective. I mean, is it a large amount when, uh, you know, a couple of bombers go out compared to, I don't know, let's say civilian aircraft? Not necessarily. And I guess you could, I was there. 
forthcoming book by um, Nita Crawford, a US professor who's done uh, quite a lot of the digging into the US emissions in particular. And she takes quite an interesting approach of sort of generating a per capita figure for the emissions. So on the one hand, you can look at the US military emissions as a whole and say, well, look, that amount places them somewhere between Peru and Portugal if they were a country. So by rights, they should probably have a desk in Glasgow at the COP26 at the moment because they're potentially a more influential country than many of the countries who will be represented there in terms of their emissions. Um, At the same time, it's like, well, on the scale of the US emissions as a whole, that's maybe, what, 1% of the US's annual emissions. So it's not huge. But then if you look at it on a per capita basis of how much – so if the DOD was a country, how much would every – service member and it's all employee and it's like 2.4 million employees of the DOD and they would have it be emitting around 40 tons a year annually so a Swedish person would emit five tons a year annually UK it's about seven and a half tons a year so yeah there's different ways of looking at it but the thing is we might get arguments saying well why are you signaling out the military here why are we focusing on the military so much and it's really because A, we haven't focused on the military at all and enough historically. B, this is a considerable amount of carbon, particularly compared to most of the countries of the world. Uh, And C, that unless we start focusing on them, we're not going to get any change. And ultimately, we're going to have to make that decision of, do we actually encourage our militaries to emit less? And if they're not going to emit less, then do other sectors have to emit even less to make room for the military within those carbon budgets? Do we have to have smaller militaries working in different ways? Can we get those technological developments which are actually going to reduce their emissions? There's a lot of difficult decisions um, to be made and which probably won't be made satisfactorily, I would imagine. How do you... A big part of this conversation has been, and this is kind of, you know, the nature of military reporting, has been how much of this is a black hole? How much of this is just unknown? How do you study something like this when there are so many unknowns? Yeah. So next week at the COP, we are going to launch a new website, uh, militaryemissions.org. And on there, we have an interactive map. And so we have selected, so the UNFCCC, uh, the UN system, it divides up countries into either Annex 1 countries or non-Annex 1 countries. So Annex 1 countries were the ones back around the time John Kerry was uh, praising the escape of the US military from emissions reporting, the countries who were kind of most industrialized. So there are around 40, 44 plus the EU uh, Annex 1 countries, and they're the ones who have to report every year. They're the ones who's more industrially developed and who are creating more emissions or have historically created more emissions. So the ones who have to report every year. So in theory, that should give us an annual report where we can look into it and go, well, this is what their military is. In reality, the standard of emissions reporting isn't particularly good in those annual reports. In addition to that, we looked at who the 55 biggest military spenders every year. And that brought us in a chunk of other states. And these are the non-Annex 1 countries. And those are ones who were sort of developing countries at the time the year was being negotiated. But that now includes Saudi Arabia. That now includes Israel, China, India, Pakistan, all of whom have pretty large militaries, like China spends is second after the US every year in, in military spending. They don't have to report every year in the same way that the Annex 1 countries do. So on our website, we present what it's around 55 countries are currently reporting. 
Those are the ones who are spending the most on weapons and who have reporting obligations. What we have seen from the Annex 1 countries, so those are developed countries, we've tried to grade them to see what the quality of reporting is. And only four countries out of those 44 have reached fair in terms of their reporting so that they kind of comply with the very low standard being set by the UNFCCC. Of the non-Annex 1 countries, absolutely none of them are reporting their military emissions in any kind of meaningful way. For some of them, we don't even have reports for 2014, 2012, 2016. So they're the most up-to-date reports we've got on their emissions. And in their military stuff doesn't tend to be mentioned. China, they report a little bit, but overall it's, yeah, it's really dire, <laughs> to be quite honest. And then within the Annex 1 countries, those who are reporting their emissions every year, there's a huge variety. So these IPCC standards, where you're reporting your fuel use or your stationary emissions from your bases, they kind of get aggregated together into a lump. So doesn't really tell you very much and they tend to get mixed in with other things like citizen defense, mountain rescue teams and things. Some countries don't report at all because they don't think military should have to report anything. So they've got this huge variety. So again, going back to this question of can you compare between countries? No, there's very little standardization. It's not comparable. It's not transparent. It's not open. There are some who seem to be reporting but wouldn't feel confident saying, that it was particularly good or particularly comprehensive and particularly because it only just covers fuel use and heating at bases. It doesn't bring in supply chains or these other emission sources we've already talked about. There's no enforcement mechanism whatsoever. I mean, you're saying it's voluntary, but even for emission reports that are not voluntary, there's still no actual penalties that I can think of. Do you think this is ever going to change? Do you think that there is any way to hold uh, militaries accountable? Well, in theory, they should be held accountable by their governments. Um, (laughs) How that works in practice. (laughs) Yeah. Ultimately, it's up to the public and us, I think, to hold them accountable, to scrutinize them, to make a fuss public opinion. You know, and that's kind of being reflected. I, you know, I've been working on these issues for quite a long time, not just on military emissions, but around conflict in the environment for quite a while. And kind of been conscious of the military emissions debate for many years. And it's actually been interesting in the last sort of year, 18 months, you've had a real sort of uptick in attention and interest from NATO, for example. So last June, NATO had made a big fuss that they were going to be pivoting to climate security, climate security in China. That was kind of the outcome of their summit thing. They also we're going to start looking at their emissions. And there's a lot of build-up in this, a lot of coverage, Washington Post, elsewhere, lots of Jens Stoltenberg, Director General of NATO, former Norwegian Environment Minister. He's pretty seized of this matter and he's like giving a lot of attention. The actual summit outcome wasn't quite what we were hoping for. It was like NATO itself will start to sort out some of this, start to look at some of its emissions. NATO members, we will make significant badly determined or ill-determined cuts to something or other by some point in the future. And if not, we'll certainly start thinking about this stuff. So yeah, it wasn't quite what we were hoping for, but at the same time that this discussion has even started is a huge shift uh, in thinking and attention. And then you have some countries, I mentioned like the UK and Switzerland, who have passed 
their net zero legislation and so are legally bound to get to net zero by 2050. And for quite a lot of countries with large militaries, they will find that their militaries and ministries of defence are the largest single emitters within government. And that's certainly the case in the UK with the Ministry of Defence. So unless you know it's getting harder and harder for them to kind of ignore the facts, you've got this very large elephant in the room covered in camouflage <laughs> uh, material, presumably. That's why it's been so difficult to find all these years. But yeah, countries are going to have to face up to this and start to address this in a more meaningful way. And the debate, the conversation has started. You know, we've seen coverage on Reuters, BBC, Washington Post, in a way which we haven't really seen before. So there's a hell of a long way to go, don't get me wrong, but the conversation has has started and it's picking up momentum. Have you had or has there been any response from any of the militaries in an official capacity on this? Have they said anything? Do they recognize that perhaps climate change is an existential threat to the military itself as well as a quite uh, tangible threat to the, the planet? Yeah, it's definitely changing. You know, you just had this slew of reports from the DOD a couple of weeks ago looking at military installations that were going to be vulnerable to climate impacts, as you already seen in a few cases in the US. There's more attention on climate as a trigger or a risk factor for conflict and militaries making attention to that. Obviously, how you react to climate change where there aren't really hard security solutions to climate change. And if you over-militarize these things, then that's not necessarily really going to get the outcomes which we would prefer. But there's certainly a lot more attention, a lot more thinking on it. And you know, that was one of the outcomes from the NATO summit as well, that Canada were going to set up this NATO Centre of Excellence on climate change to ensure that climate change awareness and thinking is probably embedded in militaries and they can see how they can contribute to it in terms of early warning data and response capacity and things. So yeah, it is clearly affecting the militaries. They are more aware of it. Some of them have probably been more aware of it than quite a few in government have been for quite a long time. It's a case of, are they going to start acting on it and acting on it in a way that isn't just providing military solutions to the problem, but is actually tackling the root cause of the problem, which is ultimately our emissions and their emissions. And unless you can do both of those things, then as I said before, they're not going to be taken seriously as, as actors in the climate security debate. And I think maybe just yeah on that as well, I think when you look at trying to create institutional change on environmental issues, irrespective of the kind of institution, a lot of it comes down to the work of individuals. In order to mainstream something across organizations, you have to have some super committed individuals who've got the energy. And I think in the case of militaries where you have what would be a huge amount of internal inertia, given some of the things we discussed before, that militaries shouldn't be bothered about the environment, the environment's not an issue for them it's going to be this really big task to try and get the environment and climate awareness <clears throat> mainstreamed across uh, institutionally to then kind of create the change that we need to see. But the ch- but it seems like the change we need to see is for there to be radically less military, right? There, there needs to be fewer people, fewer installations, fewer vehicles. And there's also other things we need to do, the better management of waste, you know, burn pits aren't great, etc. But it seems like the biggest and easiest thing would be to just have much less of it. And it seems like that's not a solution they're going to be interested in. Right? I think that's an entirely legitimate concern. <laughs> Given recent experience, yeah, it's difficult, eh? Particularly in countries which are extremely wedded to... uh 
grossly extended <laughs> militaries and particularly at a time where you know on the one hand you have militaries saying well look the climate crisis is going to destabilize the world you need to spend more money on militaries so we can address the security problems being created by climate change and at the same time oh hold on that military spending is actually contributing to climate change with yeah even if you're buying new kit going well look we need these new tanks or new, new vehicles with big batteries which run off electricity <clears throat> Actually, that comes with a carbon footprint as well. So by procuring new stuff, then you're actually generating more emissions. So, yeah, it's a really difficult issue for militaries to face and to, and to tackle and decisions will have to be made. And, you know, there is a much wider conversation about to what extent do we need to look at force structures and, and how we sort of focus or, yeah, the, the level of importance we give to different security issues, I think, and how we respond to them climate change, if you see it generally as a security issue, then what are the solutions? How do we address the security problems it's going to create? Can you deal with them by having a massively grossly distended military and shooting at them? Probably not. It's going to be more diplomacy, humanitarian, um, assisting those who've been severely impacted and whose living conditions have been severely impacted by climate change. So yeah, it's going to be a, a difficult few decades, I think. He said in British understatement. We're a we're a down note show. It's all right. <laughs> Jason, did you have another No, I what I want to say is that that is really depressing. But Matthew, you could also make the argument that we need a lot fewer people. Not just, you know, if you're gonna go down the line of much smaller militaries, I mean, you know. Well, I mean, I'm not arguing for it. I'm just saying, you know, I mean it's uh, it's along the same line of thinking. Or equally, you could just share the stuff out more equally between the people. Oh, what are you, some sort of communist? Jeez. He is European. Keep that in mind. Oh, oh, right, right. <laughs> Actually, no, no. Not After anymore, Brexit, no. you're not. Geology says that we are. I think. Actually, <laughs> just on just on that point of um, communist social systems uh, in the EU. So, one of the complaints from militaries has been: we are very large, very complex institutions. Therefore, we're going to find it very difficult to cut our emissions or have any kind of net zero target. So, in the UK, you may have heard about our dreadful communist healthcare system, which provides care free at the point of need. That's the largest employer in the UK. Like it's, whatever, it's about a million people who work for it. Anyway, they've just set a net zero target and it's a net zero target which deals with their scope one and scope two emissions, which is the fuel, but also their scope three emissions from their supply chains. And somehow this incredibly complex structure of the NHS, which is insanely complex because every government for the last however many years it's been has imp implemented changes in its structure. I can think of no organisation more structurally confusing than the NHS. But somehow it's managed to set itself emissions reduction target to meet net zero uh, by 2050. So if they can do it, then I'm fairly sure the Ministry of Defence and other ministries around the world can have a decent crack at it. Are you hopeful? It depends how you package up the hope. I think if it's a fairly small package of hope about, oh, this is great. Actually, there's a conversation going on now. Like, look, there's NATO acknowledging that it needs to reduce its carbon footprint or carbon blueprint. That's great. That's some hope right there. But then, yeah, when you step back at what are the implications of the changes that are needed to military, just as you are to other sectors of society, then, yeah, you need to squeeze that optimism a little harder, I think. Doug Weir, thank you so much for joining us today and bringing us so much hope. <laughs> and where's that report going to be and when does it drop? The new, this new website. 
Yep. So we're going to press the big red button, not that big red button, big green button on the 9th of November, which is, oh my God, next Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So yeah, militaryemissions.org. If you check it out then, it should be live by then and you'll be able to see just how bad the reporting of your government is on its military emissions. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, we are on Substack at angryplanet.substack.com or angryplanetpod.com, where, for $9 a month, you get access to two bonus episodes a month and commercial-free versions of all the rest. Again, if you like the show, please go to angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com and kick us a few dollars. Helps keep us going and let you know that you really like us. We will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.